Amen. Today we will be kicking off the Summer of Psalms here at Munster Church. Yes, this is year five, Summer of Psalms. We are in book five of Summer of Psalms. You've spent four summers going through the Psalms. We are now at the final book. As you know, they are divided into five books. Now, what does Jim have planned for next summer? I don't know that. What I do know is that we are going to be looking at how God delivers this summer. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 107. Next week I'll be here, we'll be looking at Psalm 108. And then whatever Psalms you're looking at after that, I do not know those either. Before we open God's word and turn our attention to it, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are able to open your word, that you allow your Holy Spirit to enter us, that we can hear it, we can understand it, we can allow it to take deep root in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim the good news of your word. Father, we love you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to be in Psalm 107. If you have a copy of God's Word, whether in print or on your phone or tablet or whatever, I encourage you to open it. It will also be on the screens behind me. Starting in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships. Doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This is the word of the Lord. So how many of you have played the game Uno? Okay, a lot of hands. Good. It's a simple game, right? If you haven't played Uno, it's, it's a card game. The goal is to be the one without any cards at the end, to go out first. Now, the name Uno comes from the word you must shout when you have one card left. What is the word you must shout? Correct. Uno. We're a little confused there. It's okay. It's all right. Now, my wife's family, they are big Uno fans. They take their Uno very seriously. I don't. They have an infamous Uno game from when they were kids that seemed to last four hours or more. Now, this is because they don't play by the rules. They play that if you cannot play a card, you must continue to draw from the pile until you can play. Seems silly to me. But this makes the game go on for a long, long time. Now, the game has different cards. There are color-coded cards with numbers, but there are also special cards. There are draw two cards. There are draw four cards. There are skips. There are reverses. Now, there is one card of all these cards, that is the most dangerous. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's the draw four. It's not. The most dangerous card in the game of Uno is the reverse card. Now, why is this the most dangerous card? It changes the rotation of play. The way that the game is meant to be played in a clockwise rotation now goes backwards. What does this mean? This means that the person you've been hitting with draw fours now has the opportunity to hit you with draw fours. I would rather get hit with a draw four in due course than take my future into my hands and reverse the game of play. I'll reap the consequences of my actions. Now, there are many ways that we can describe God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes God as infinite, eternal, unchangeable. As well, he is full of wisdom, he's full of power, he is full of holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. But we should also see that our God is a God of reversal. We often see God reversing things in Scripture. Abraham and Sarah are wanting to have a child. Sarah has been barren all her life. And what does God do? He reverses that barrenness and they have Isaac. The Israelites are in bondage in Egypt. And what does God do? He reverses their bondage and then brings them out of Egypt to a land all their own. City of Jericho, right? Heavily fortified city and stronghold in Canaan. And the Lord brings his people to the gate of their inheritance. And what does he do? He reverses this city of strength to a city of destruction. Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, is barren. She prays to the Lord, and the Lord reverses her barrenness and gives her Samuel. David is a humble shepherd who God turns into a king. Jonah wanted to die rather than go to Nineveh, so he's thrown overboard hoping to end his life, 
And God sends a fish instead to swallow him up, vomit him onto the dry ground, so that he would do what God commanded. Amnon, a wicked king in Judah, is put to death, and his son, Josiah, is put on the throne at eight years old. Right? And Josiah will become a great king. God reverses this. The Israelites, they're looking for a warrior king to be their Messiah, to help them with the oppression of the Romans. And what does God do? He reverses their thought and instead gives them a Messiah who will not save them from the Romans, but save them from their sin. Saul is persecuting the church. He is breathing out threats, as the word says, to the church. And God takes this great enemy and reverses him into a great apostle of the church. The theme of Psalm 107 is this. Our God is a God of reversal. We'll see this theme in four testimonies. The hungry are satisfied, the bound are released, the sick are healed, and the terrified are comforted. The context of Psalm 107 is a psalm of thanksgiving to God, right? Because God brought the Israelites out of exile from Babylon. And that is what Psalm 107 is praising. Each of our testimonies will have a New Testament counterpart. And we'll use the Gospel of Mark for that. For each testimony, we will see how God reverses the condition of the speaker. Let's look at the first section, the first testimony. The hungry are satisfied. Verses 4 and 5. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. So what is the problem for these first people's testimony? They're wandering in the desert. They're wandering in the wilderness. They have no city to dwell in. They don't even have a pathway to go to a city to dwell in. And they're hungry and thirsty. Now, how many have been in an actual desert before? Okay, about about as many as I expected, right? I've never been in a desert. A desert is a dry, barren land, right? There's There's no water. There's no vegetation. There's a lot of sand. I don't like sand. Now, I've been in a lot of places that seem as hot as a desert, but I've never been in a desert myself. I imagine being stranded in the desert is horrible. Now, Psalm 107 is using this theme of wasteland and desert wastes to point to two things, a lack of sustenance and a lack of community. Now, I know a lot of us have probably, a lot of us have not been in a desert, but I know a lot of us probably have felt a lack of, of community. It might be hard to think about now, but at some point in our lives, I imagine we have encountered a feeling of loneliness, encountered a feeling of a lack of community, or we've been in a place where we don't feel like we belong. The Israelites in exile had no community. They had no sustenance. The people of Israel were uprooted from their home. They wandered in a foreign land. And what did they do? They cried out to God, and God delivers them from their distress, verses 6 through 9. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. How does he deliver them? 
He leads them by a straight way to a city. What is meant by a straight way? It means they go directly there. There's no twisting. There's no turning. They go directly to the city. And they are satisfied in their hunger. Now, physical hunger, that is a never-ending reality for a human. Right? You can have a meal, and in a few hours, you're going to be hungry again. But if we look into Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, we see that Jesus takes a small amount of bread, and he takes a small amount of fish, and he multiplies it for a great multitude, more than 5,000 people. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that appears in all four gospels. And all four of them show this great multitude being fed in only a way that God can. And yet, Many of those people who were there would still yell, crucify. It is clear then, the testimony of this person shows that even in the chaotic desert wasteland of life, God provides. He provides sustenance, he provides community, but most importantly, he satisfies the longing of the soul. This testimony of God's faithfulness hopes in a momentary delivering as well as a future delivering. And the beautiful thing is, is that God will do both. Now our second testimony goes in a little bit of a different direction. The second testimony is one who's released from their bonds. Verses 10 and 11. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Now, if we read verse 10 alone, right, if we, if we read it by itself, we could think that this person is in prison for some injustice. Or we can think that they're in prison because they are, uh, they've committed a crime and they are serving their sentence. But when we read it with verse 11, we start to see the full picture of what's going on. The person's state of affliction and darkness is because they rebelled against the word of God. They spurned the counsel of the Most High God, right? To spurn means to reject with disdain or contempt. And in verse 12, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. You take all three of these verses together, 10, 11, and 12, put them together, this picture that is being painted for us is not one we like to look at. Why don't we like to look at this picture? You see, the prisoner here is in irons, right? Irons, cuffs. The prisoner here is in darkness because of their sin. They rebelled against God. They knew the words of God, and yet they did what they wanted anyways. Why don't we like to look at this picture? We don't like to see that our misery is our own making whether we're talking about us in 2023, we're talking about the people in the time of Jesus or the Israelites in the exile or at the dawn of creation when Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the snake. We don't like to look at our misery as a product of our own work. If we understand this testimony in the context of the exile, then we understand it perfectly. The people of Israel sinned. Right? They, they, fought, they sought after false idols instead of following God. So God allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom, and he allowed the Babylonians to come in and wipe out the southern kingdom. Israel was no more. 
That picture that we don't like to look at, the consequences of our own actions, gets even clearer. Not only did the people deserve the punishment that they received, but God is the one who orchestrated the exile. God is the one who's punishing Israel for their sins. Verses 13 and 14. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Now, in our modern context, right, when someone who's in prison is finished serving their sentence, the warden doesn't go into their cell and break the cell open, right? The the warden doesn't go in and make a show of rescuing the prisoner and bringing them out, no. When they finish serving their time, they're given their things and they're allowed to leave. In this context, the Lord allows for his people to be taken into exile. And he is the one who rescues them. The Lord is the one who removes their bonds. The Lord is the one who does the mighty work in delivering them. Now, we see a fantastic New Testament application here. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus enters the land of the Gerasenes. And many of you know this story, right? He gets out of the boat, and immediately he's met by a man who's possessed by many demons. So many demons that the man gives his name as Legion. This man is indeed in prison. Not a prison of bars. Not an exile to a faraway place. This man is bound in darkness by these demons. What does the Lord do? What does Jesus Christ do? He commands the demons to come out of the man. And they leave him. The Lord does a mighty work in breaking the bonds that are holding this man. Verse 15 of our psalm unites the account of the demon-possessed man and the testimony in our text. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. To God be the glory. Now our third testimony continues in this theme of sin and affliction But not so much prison, sickness. Verses 17 and 18. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Oh, let's talk about sickness for a moment. Okay, I'm not going to get graphic. I'm not going to get graphic here. But I know there were times when I was so sick that I did not want to eat any food. Right? Our, our verse text tells us that they loathe any kind of food. And I also know there are times when maybe I did not not want food, but I didn't want food from a certain place anymore. I think we all know what I'm talking about here. Sickness is not fun. Right? Sickness in any form is not fun. We don't like getting sick. Right? We don't like getting a cold at an inopportune time. Well, it's funny. We think of all colds that we get as inopportune. It's like we finish a project and we go, okay, now I can get sick. Right? Now, now, now I'll take the cold. No, we don't think that way. Anytime we get sick, we're not happy about it. Rightly so. It's not fun. Could be food poisoning. Could be the flu. Could be a common cold. Or it could be something more serious. The Bible doesn't give us the kind of historical reporting as to when people are sick with minor things. 
Oftentimes, when sickness or plague or disease happens, it's a result of the wrath of God. Sometimes it's not, like in Hezekiah's case, King Hezekiah. The reason sickness or affliction is usually tied with God's wrath in the Bible is because the Bible takes great care to differentiate between the two kinds of sickness and affliction. King Hezekiah became sick, and we're not told the reason. But if it had been a result of his sin, the Bible would tell us that, but it doesn't. Now, I know you're all waiting to hear how I'm going to transition this to how we should view sickness in our modern day, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Sticking in the context of Psalm 107, verses 19 and 20 show God delivering. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So the testimony in Psalm 107 ends in deliverance. But if we look at the New Testament account of Mark 5, verses 21 through 43, we see that Jesus not only heals and brings Jairus' 12-year-old daughter back to life, but in the midst of that, he also heals a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. It's not a coincidence. The Bible does not tell us that these things are a result of sin. Instead, this is the fragility of life. Our lives are fragile. Jesus fulfills the testimony of Psalm 107 when he heals these people. Now as well, in Jesus' day, blindness and lameness, right, those were associated with sin. If you were born blind or you became blind or you became lame or born lame, it was thought it was a result of your sin or your parents' sin. John 9 recounts Jesus and the disciples passing by a man who was born blind. We pick up the story in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was not born blind because of his sin in the womb. This man was not born blind because of his parents' sin. This man was born blind for the explicit purpose that the works of God would be displayed in him. Now let's talk about sickness. Let's talk about disease. Cancer is terrible. Right? We are hard-pressed to find someone who is not suffering from cancer. I've lost many family members to cancer and friends. And cancer has claimed many in our day and age. But the truth is, is that our lives are fragile. Our human condition is that we were conceived and born in sin. And because of this, we get to a point in our lives where we begin to decay, and that point is different for everyone. But what I'm about to say is going to be hard. What I'm about to say is not going to be easy to listen to, but it is true nonetheless. God uses cancer and other diseases for his glory. I know this. Because all that God does, God does to glorify himself. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question one asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer to that question is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now how can I say that God uses cancer for his glory? I can say this because God has created this world and everything in it. Everything belongs to God. And if God wanted us to remain perfectly healthy, he would have done it. 
But because of our original sin, our bodies are frail. Our bodies begin to degrade. But here is the good news. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not saved from the common cold, not saved from the flu, not saved from cancer, but saved from eternal separation from our God and Father. That is the good news. We are no longer afraid of the grave. Death has lost its sting. For those who are in Christ, we know that the perfectly healthy part is on the other side of eternity. Friends, we have had many health scares in the past of our world and our present age, and we will have health scares in our future. But we know that we have nothing to fear. For God has given us an eternal future which cannot be taken away. Instead, this is where it gets hard. Instead, we should use our seasons of sickness to glorify God and to point Him to others. When we lay writhing in pain, we can say to God be the glory. That's the difference that separates us from the rest of the world. That when we have pain, when we have suffering, we can say to God be the glory. Right? Paul had the thorn in his side. We don't know what the thorn was, but Paul was suffering. And in that, he begged that it would be taken from him, but God did not relent right away. And yet he said to God be the glory. For in my weakness, he is strong. This is what separates us from the rest of the world. That when we are in sickness, we are in bondage, we can know that God cares for us. That he has an amazing future for us. That no matter how long we are on this earth, we can say to God be the glory. Now we can't end here though. We have one more testimony to cover and if I, if I could go back, maybe I'd switch them around so we can end there because it was a great point to end. But there's one more testimony here. And it's purposely put in its place in Psalm 107. We will see here that the terrified are comforted. Verses 23 through 27. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. I said that this was perfectly placed in Psalm 107 just after the testimony we read. But it's kind of an odd testimony doesn't really kind of make sense to us, right? Especially because the Israelites were not a seafaring people, right? God had them cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Sure, they were fishermen. Sure, they dealt with rough waters in the Sea of Galilee. But verse 23 alludes to a vast water, a great sea. And the first thing we think of probably isn't the exile to Israel, of Israel. I think of Jonah. We talk about this vast sea, I think of the account of Jonah. Especially because in the Hebrew, verse 27 ends not by saying they were at their wit's end, but actually says all their wisdom was swallowed up. 
right? And I think that's an interesting turn of a phrase that the Hebrew writers used. Now, we're not going to delve too deep here. Bad pun, okay. But we have to understand that this fourth testimony highlights the awesome, terrifying power of God who created the universe. The sailors aboard the ship, they're rising and falling with every wave. They know they're at the mercy of God. If God wants to flip their ship over, he can. So what do the sailors do? Verses 28 and 29. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Is that verse starting to sound familiar? Because it's in every testimony. Then it says, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, as time has progressed and information has become more and more available and science progresses, we have become too smart, right? We can explain why tornadoes form. We can explain why earthquakes happen. We can explain what are the conditions for a hurricane. Our world has done a great job of taking God out of the equation. You may be able to explain that hot air and cold air coming together can form a tornado, But you cannot deny that God is the one who orchestrates the way that the airs move. He is the one that causes our planet to spin the way it does. He is the one who ordered creation with the right speed and the right flow so that the seasons will continually change. The waters will continue to ebb and flow and day and night are constant. Our God is a God of order. He creates and he utilizes careful balance and the powers of the universe. But God is the only one who can calm chaos. And we see a New Testament application here. Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. The disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. They're actually sailing to the land of the Gerasenes. They don't know it yet. But all of a sudden, a hurricane picks up, and they are caught in the midst of a storm. Jesus is sleeping, and we pick up the short story in verse 38. And they woke him, saying to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Jesus is God. Jesus is the only one who can calm the chaos. And we have four testimonies in Psalm 107. Right? We have the chaos of the desert, we have the affliction of prison and sickness, and we have the chaos of the waters. Right? The testimonies are framed in such a way that we see God reversing the conditions of the speakers from chaos to chaos. Right? This means and symbolizes God's sovereign hand over everything. I said there was a reason that the third testimony about sickness is put right before the testimony of the terrified. Because being in the desolate wilderness being in a prison, being sick and afflicted with something, and being terrified are all chaotic in our lives. Right? All these things lead to us being uneasy with our life. And we see that God is the one who calms the chaos. He reverses the chaos. This psalm, Psalm 107, 
puts God as the deliverer, a sovereign deliverer, not as one who promises a steady state of blessing, but as one who carries his people of this earth through various stages of life. The author of this psalm testifies to God's greatness, but the author does not understand what God is planning to do. Sure, God rescued them from the exile due to their disobedience, but what God is planning to do is far greater. See, the Gospels show Jesus doing all the delivering that is listed here in Psalm 107. In the Gospels, Jesus does all these things for the people. While it is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, for us Christians, this is a prophetic psalm. Prophecy that points to deliverance through Jesus Christ. We should also see there is a stark difference between the one who is in Christ and the one who is not in Christ. And this stark difference is highlighted in verses 33 through 42. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression or evil or sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in the trackless wastes. And there he lets the hungry dwell. They establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. He does not let their livestock diminish. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. You see the difference, right, between the ones who are in Christ and the ones who are not in Christ. And the psalmist intertwines these things. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hold on a second. I don't have a huge family. My finances aren't great. I don't have all the stuff and the food that I want. Right? We should not think that if we are following God correctly that we will have all of these things in abundance. And our psalm also references livestock, but I'm guessing most of us don't have livestock. Friends, the Bible continually points to God satisfying his people not with what they want, but with what they need. What does our psalm say in verse 9? For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. What does it mean to be satisfied? Right? To be full and to be satisfied, those are two different things. To be satisfied means you have what you need to thrive. You have what you need to grow. You see, our lives... This life that we have is a very short chapter in a much longer book. And if you're here and you're questioning everything in life, or if you're here and you're thinking to yourself that God has not delivered you from the horrors of life, or if you're here and you're thinking you don't even know why you're here, or you're watching online and you don't know why you're watching online, know that God does nothing by accident. He brought you here for a purpose, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. To hear the words of a psalmist who wrote 500 years before Jesus would come. So that you would see that Jesus would fulfill these words. Fulfill these prophecies. That Jesus is the one. The Messiah. The perfect son of God. 
God is the only one who can calm the chaos. God is the only one who can reverse the chaos. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ can not only calm the chaos of the raging seas and the raging demons, but he comes to calm the chaos of your raging sin. Sin rages inside us. Sin seeks to master us, control us, and constrict us. But for those who call upon the name of the Lord and believe in him, they will be saved. Sin no longer has a claim on us. Our psalm ends with a very simple statement. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Friends, consider the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom the world was created. He is the one through whom the world was saved. And he is the one through whom the new heavens and the new earth will come down on that last day. For on that day, on that last day, the sun will rise for the last time. There will be no more night. The wanderer will have a city to dwell in. These bodies will be released from sin once and for all. Any affliction of sickness will be ended. The storms of this earth that terrify us will never rise again. God is the only one who can reverse the chaos. And in Jesus Christ, the effects of sin have been reversed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have calmed the raging sin inside us, that you have sent your Son to take our place. For we deserved your wrath. Our sin deserves punishment, but yet for the sake of your Son, you have forgiven us. You have poured out your wrath upon your Son subjecting him to the horror instead of us. You did this while we were still sinners. Not for any good that we could do to earn this grace, but by your merciful hand alone. Father, we are suffering. We come in here this day and we are full of worries and anxieties. We are plagued by a lack of community. We are plagued by the sin in our body that seeks to control us. We're plagued by sickness. We're afflicted by sickness. And Father, we are terrified because we cannot control this life. Father, I thank you that you calm these feelings inside us and that we can look to you for grace, mercy, and peace. That when the world looks at us and tells us that the world is crumbling around you, how can you be at peace? We can say that we have a peace that passes all understanding. To God be the glory. Lord, we long to be in your kingdom. We enjoy this life that you've given us, and we pray that we would enjoy it to the fullest. But Father, as we journey towards your kingdom day after day, we pray that you would bless us and sanctify us, that we may be more like you each day. Lord, we love you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.